Do you need help with your journey following Jesus? Has your Bible reading brought up some interesting questions? Um, I, I need a prayer request. Is I've heard um, pastors talk about you can't get to heaven just with good deeds. I was just wondering what you guys think. Is, the, is there a correlation between the seventh trumpet and Revelations as the last trumpet, or is he talking about some other trumpet? Finally, a place to get answers. We're ready to take your prayer request and answer your Bible questions. Call in at 303-690-3000. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon. Welcome to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts live on the air today. This is the show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible, or if there's anything going on in your life that you have questions about or that you'd like prayer for, we'd love to talk with you and pray for you, hopefully answer some of those questions and the like. So please give us a call. The number to call is 303-690-3000. It's 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, the text line is 720-336-0897. We want to welcome all of you who are tuning in, wherever you're tuning in from. You know, there are so many of you tuning in live right now in uh, Colorado and Wyoming here on Grace FM. Welcome to the program. We're glad you tuned in today. We also want to welcome those who are listening on our syndicated stations on the East Coast, on Hope FM in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland, as well as those listening on Truth FM in Tennessee and parts of North Carolina and Kentucky. So glad to have you all with us today. Just a reminder that those of you listening on the East Coast and the area around Tennessee, you're hearing this program on a one-week delay, but we would love to hear from you. So do give us a call, and the, then you'll get the opportunity the following week to tune in and hear yourself on the radio. Um, but just a heads up that you're listening to this show on a one-week delay. We also want to give a big hello to everybody who listens online. We know there are so many of you who listen now uh, either in your browser, just at gracefm.com. Uh, if you're ever at work and you know you're out on your computer, you can always go in your browser, gracefm.com, and tune into this program or any of our other programs here on Grace FM. And we know that there are a lot of you who listen on the mobile app. And so if you don't have that mobile app yet, definitely go get it. Uh, just go in your app store for whatever device you use and type in Grace FM in the search bar and that app will come right up and you'll be able to put it on your device and listen to this show and all the other all the other great programming here on Grace FM. The number to call for this show, 303-690-3000. It's 303-690-3000 or text us 720-336-0897. Here at the beginning of the show is usually a great time if you've had a question or something that you want to talk about if you want to get on the air because usually here at the front end of the show we're just waiting for the calls to come in and then we take them as they do. Um, just a few words about myself. My name is Pastor Nick Cady. I'm the pastor of Whitefields Community Church which is located here in Longmont, Colorado and I am your host here on Calvary Live every Monday. Uh, our church in Longmont meets in downtown Longmont. If you're familiar with the city we are on the corner the northwest corner of Longs Peak Avenue and Kaufman Street, which is just one block west of Main Street on Longs Peak Avenue. We're in the St. Vrain Memorial Building, which is a, a historic and kind of a central building here in downtown Longmont. And we are right on the edge of Roosevelt Park. Roosevelt Park is our city park here in Longmont, and our building is actually just 
directly to the south of the downtown park and ride here in Longmont at 8th and Kaufman. We're just on 7th and Kaufman, which is um, Long's Peak is 7th Avenue here in Longmont. And so we're right on the northwest corner in the St. Vrain Memorial Building, 700 Long's Peak Avenue. And we would love for you to visit with us if you're looking for a church and you live in the Longmont area, or if you know people who live in this area, maybe you live elsewhere, but you know family or friends who live in this area, definitely send them our way. We'd love to meet them, worship with them, minister to them, and serve alongside them here at Whitefields. You can find more information about our church online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com. But if uh, you are in the, any of the surrounding communities, whether it's Berthet or Mead, Lyons, Frederick, Firestone, Decono, Erie, Lafayette, and North Boulder, Niwa, we would love for you to join us here at Whitefields and worship with us. We're currently in a series right now called I Could Never Believe in a God Who. And uh, it was originally going to be a seven-week series, but we are extending it to eight weeks to cover a really important topic for week eight. So we just finished up week six yesterday on Father's Day, and we covered the topic, which uh, was the biggest one that we got responses for, because what we did in preparation for this series is we put out a poll online. And many of you listeners here on Grace FM, as well as um, many people in our church and people uh, outside of our church, filled out this this questionnaire and this poll, and we asked people, how would you finish this sentence? I could never believe in a God who, meaning what are the things that cause you the biggest hurdles? What are the biggest struggles for you when it comes to putting your faith and trust in Jesus and the Bible? What are the things that, that even maybe you would say, I am a believer, but here's the thing I really still struggle with the most. Um, or maybe you're not. Maybe you say, you know, I I was, I grew up this way, I grew up Christian, or I was interested in the Bible, but this is the one thing that I just couldn't get over. And so what we've done over the course of these weeks, and what we're continuing to do for the next two of this series, is we're, we're directly answering those questions, just honestly, straightforwardly, you know, what are the things that cause the biggest hurdles? And our goal is to help people move from, from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief, and we want to help people put their trust in Jesus. And one of the reasons is because clearly the Bible says that what you believe is of utmost importance. Not only does it shape the way you live, but it shapes your eternal destiny. You know, Jesus said, um, you know, whoever believes in me. And so, you know, the gospel of John says, I've written these things so that you would believe. And by believing in Jesus, you would have eternal life. And so what you believe is extremely important. So we want to help people believe. The other thing we want to do is we want to help remove some of the barriers that people have, have had if, if they're not indeed necessary barriers. I think that a lot of things that people point to and say, this is the thing that I struggle with the most, they're actually really good answers to those questions, and we want to provide those answers. And the other thing we want to do with this series, we want to train people. And so if you, uh, I'm sure that you probably have conversations with people that you know, people at your work, who ask similar questions to the ones that we've been covering. So some of the things we've talked about, you know, we talked about, is the Bible really trustworthy? This past Sunday, the, the number one response we got in our poll was, uh, I could never believe in a God who allows bad things to happen to good people or who allows suffering in the world or who allows children to suffer or atrocities to take place and things like that. And we talked about that. Uh, that was yesterday. That sermon's already up on our website if you are interested in checking out the answers that we gave to that issue. You can check out whitefieldschurch.com and just look up the sermon section there and it's right there and you can download that for free and listen to it or you can listen to it on our podcast. Uh, this Sunday for week seven we're going to be talking about this. 
I could never believe in a God who hasn't proven his existence. We're going to ask the question, is there any empirical evidence that God exists, right? Do we just believe in God because the Bible says that he exists? Or is there actually evidence outside of the Bible which points to God's existence? And has God proven his existence? We're going to talk about that a lot this Sunday and look at we're going to dive into that issue. And then for the final part of this series, a really hot topic, we, uh, we weren't originally going to include it, but we feel like it's necessary, is this, uh, we, you know, we're posing the question or answering the person who would say, I could never believe in a God who doesn't um, approve of or doesn't condone certain people's sexual preferences or sexuality. And so we're going we're gonna to de- deal with that issue head on. I know that's, that's one that causes a lot of controversy these days, but we feel like it's, it's such an important issue that um, God's people, God's church, we need to be prepared to answer that question and deal with it. So that's what's going on with us at Whitefields. If, if any of that is of interest to you, we'd love to have you come uh, visit us. Or if you're not near us, definitely you can follow us online, whitefieldschurch.com. We're also on all the main social media, and you can catch up with those. If you're a podcast listener, which I know so many of you are, um, you can check out our podcast. Just type in Whitefields Community Church. Whitefields is two words. That'll help it come up, by the way. Whitefields, two words, Community Church. And uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, we're on Google Play Podcasts, and you can uh, catch up with our series or subscribe to us on there. Let's go to our first caller, Lori in Baltimore, Maryland. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the program. Hi. Yeah, so I have a question about miracles that Jesus did while he was on Earth. Okay. You know, it's just the lame hand, the blind, all the different things he did. But Sure. So... And then the, when he fed the 5,000 with, okay. the, with the loaves and the fishes, um, why? A couple of things. So the people who sat down and ate, they received the miracle. And okay. let's say somebody else was walking by and didn't sit down and eat. They don't receive the miracle. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, so, and why is it a, a, like a definitive number? So does that mean that that God knows, he knows the exact number who's going to come to faith, and, and then the, the rest are outside of faith. Yeah, no, those are all really good questions. So let me uh, answer the easy ones first, and then we'll get to the harder ones. So, okay, the easy ones first. Um, you know, it says that he fed 5,000. What's interesting is that there's actually another instance. In Matthew's Gospel, is interesting because Matthew's Gospel actually talks about both of them, and and so we know it's not that it's a different count in two different Gospels, but that there are two different occasions on which Jesus actually fed large groups of people. And it says there, the one is called the feeding of the 5,000. The other one's called the feeding of the 4,000. But these are actually two different occasions. And so what's really interesting about that is that Matthew's Gospel there in Matthew chapter 14, for example, it's, it uh, emphasizes that Besides women and children, there were 5,000 people. And what that indicates is that there were 5,000 men. You know, in a patriarchal society, a lot of times they would only count men. And that was common in all ancient societies. And so what we have is that we have, it says there, Matthew 14, there were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So, you know, if you count women and children in that, we're looking at really about 15,000 to 20,000 people total that we're talking about here, you know, and, and that's an estimate. It could be closer to 10 to 15,000, but either way, it's much more than 5,000. And it does use the word about. 
So we know that this is not like a specific number. It's not like, you know, there weren't uh, 4,999 people, somewhere around 5,000. Like, I don't know mm -hmm. if anybody did a head count that day, but it was a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just the men. So we're dealing with quite a few, many more people. And the same goes with the feeding of the 4,000, which comes uh, after that in Matthew's gospel. So that's your first question. Now help me, help me understand your other questions. Um, so the other question is like, when he healed the blind man or the lame man, those people received the miracle, or the lepers, they received the miracle, just like we received the miracle of rebirth okay. and the Spirit, you know? But and So drawing back to the people who sat down, so let's say there were 40,000 people walking around, but only this many people sat down and were given the bread, and it, they kept passing it and passing it and passing it, and then it just kept continuing and continuing and multiplying. And, but then the people who didn't sit down didn't get the miracle, because the people who are just walking by, they, yeah. didn't, they didn't receive the miracle. So in other words, is it, is it representative of Jesus feeding those who would sit down and eat mm. with him? I you see. know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So there, there's quite a lot of, um, you know, it's hard to make an argument from silence, which is really where this seems to be going to me, is that there are a lot of things that we don't know about the situation. And I think that we're better off not drawing too many conclusions about things that we're not told. And one of the reasons for that is because uh, if we're not told that information, it's probably by choice, God's choice, to not tell us that information, right? So were there other people walking around? We have no idea. But my guess is probably not. It says that there was a crowd and the people in the crowd were getting hungry. That's why they, you know, got the food out to begin with. That these people had been there for a very long time and they were getting hungry. And rather than having the people disperse and go to, you know, find food in surrounding villages or towns or whatever, Jesus said, no, he wanted the people to stay there. And so he provided food for them by multiplying the lunch of this boy, for example. So I think it sounds like where you're going with this is really asking a question, which, which tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like in this there's an embedded question, which is this. In order for us to receive God's uh, blessings in our lives, there has to be some sort of contribution on our part of faith or willingness to stop and receive it. Is that No, really? no, 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 that's not what okay. I'm saying. Okay. No, because I know that's not true. But what I'm saying is, is that it just, like, the reason I thought of this today, because I was making banana loaf, <laughs> okay. and I want everybody to taste it, but some people say, ew, I don't like it because it's gluten-free, and other people will be like, yeah, yeah, let me try it. So I have a certain amount of pans that I bought and a certain amount of ingredients, and I realized, wow, like, God knows the, the amount of people that he's going to feed beforehand, I would think. I mean, he wants everybody to be saved, but I think he knows how much he's going to need. So uh, what I'm saying is, is those people who, I, I think it was more of a philosophical thing, those people who received the miracle just like a believer receives the miracle, but a non-believer doesn't. It's as simple as that. And I thought that that, was all that parable was kind of representative of that, where let's say you're a lame person and you go, you can't, you can't fix my hand, so you walk away. You say that to Jesus' face. Well, he's not going to heal it. But remember, he would say, if you believe I can, stretch it out, stretch it forth. And they, now, they didn't do anything on their own part. He was just commanding them to, to do something, and they followed. But I'm saying that some people, 
say it's hogwash, and mm-hmm. and they won't re- those people don't receive the miracle. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's true in some cases, but I think that with this, this was not a parable at all. This was not uh, intended to be a story through which he taught a spiritual principle. Rather, mm-hmm. this was a historical event that happened not just one time, but at least two times. And so um, I don't think that we should necessarily allegorize it so much mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as it sounds like you might be doing there. Uh, I would say that, look, this is what happened. And I would say that this is probably one of those cases where it happened whether or not people um, received it or not. Right. Like you could pass on eating the bread that was given to you and the fish that were given to you because maybe you don't like fish or bread for some reason or you're not hungry enough. Um, but I think that there was still enough for all these people. Oh, I got it. So. Okay. Sounds great. Awesome. Hey, thanks for your call. And thanks for your question. God bless sure. you, Lori. You right. too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Katie from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. The number to call, 303-690-3000. We have two open lines. It's a great time to call in. The text number is 720-336-0897. Let's go to our next caller, Tony in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the program. How are you doing? Thank you. I just had a, what I would believe to be a somewhat simple question. Um, okay. I wanted to know a uh, bit clarity on what was created on day one in creation story. So I've heard two different things. Um, one is in the very the very preface of uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That is a preface of what what He's about to do. Um, and over the next several days He creates the universe. And then of course what's been taught is on day one He creates the universe and calls into light, and then spends the next days kind of forming the Earth, concentrating on the Earth. But the entire universe, the span of the universe, is created on day one. Um, I'm just wondering if there's any scripture that supports one versus the other. Yeah. Yeah, so let me just uh, kind of summarize your argument again, just for any of our listeners who might not be tracking. He has two views on how the creation of the world took place, and part of that is also because of verse 2 which says this, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it says the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord, or Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so the question is, yeah, did God create the earth on that first day, or did he create the earth? Is what's being described maybe a recreation of earth? That's another theory, sometimes called the gap theory where it says that God created the heavens and the earth at one time, and then something happened, and they were without form and void, and darkness was over the deep, and then God intervenes and then begins recreating the earth, so to say. Um, You know, there's really a ton of speculation there. I don't believe there's any uh, scriptures, and I could be wrong, and if I am, I'm sure that I'll get some texts about it. But uh, I I would say this, that to me, a simple reading of the text is that that is a preface to what is about to happen. And that's a statement, right? It's just in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it is a great statement because it says so much about who God is and where the the origin of the earth comes from. Right. So I take the very first verse to be the preface. um, And verse two, truly, actually. Verse one and two is that there's a, a preface to what's going to be happening. And then verse three begins the actual seven days of creation, or six days of creation plus one day of rest. 
Okay, well, that's, that's simple enough. Uh, the answer is we don't truly, truly know. I was wondering if there was a scripture, you know, one way or the other. I, I believe in the same manner that you do, but I didn't know that. Seeing seen it taught two different ways, um, I didn't know if there was one specific scripture that may have clarified that and make me wrong in believing what I believe, but um, I guess yeah. we'll know in heaven. <laughs> That's true. You know, one thing I would just add to this is that I think that one of the things that people often miss when reading Genesis chapter 1 is that to us, when we read in English, it seems prosaic, meaning that it's it's written in kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Prosaic as opposed to poetic, right? And so, but you know, in Hebrew, the first chapter of Genesis is considered to be very poetic. So there's rhyming that takes place in it. And the structure of it is the structure of a poem, which is very different than chapter two. And so people are like, why are there two accounts of creation? Well, in the, of course, in the first chapter, he goes into more detail about wh what order things were done in. And chapter two really focuses specifically on the creation of human beings. Right. Um, but I think it is worth noting, you know, that Genesis one, while it does give us information about the order of creation, the purpose of it is really worship. And I, I think that that's something that a lot of uh, Christians today that I've encountered fail to see about Genesis 1. They, we try to read it more as a textbook when it's meant to be read as a poem. Now, again, I just want to be clear, that isn't to say that it isn't conveying true information. Right. But it is meant that, in other words, what is the purpose of what we write? Um, the number one purpose of Genesis chapter one is to bring us to a place of worship and awe immediately. And so that's how I, I think we need to keep that in mind as we read like a verse like Genesis one, one that says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The purpose of that writing, why it's written that way, why it's the very first verse in the Bible is to be like, boom, hit you straight in the heart and in the mind and say, wow, this is what we're talking about. This is the God who we're talking about. So Right. And, and to my second question, um, so there's three active nouns um, that, I, that I noticed when I would study. You know, if, if we were to, to put it more on the prosaic side of things, um, there's create, there's form, and there's let there be. What's mm -hmm. your take on, on the three not being interchangeable? Um, for instance, light causes into cause it into being. Some people say he creates light. Um, with the way that I read it, I wouldn't see that being interchangeable. There's, so I'm just wondering if there's your take. Because um, in a very general sense, everybody always speaks about God created everything. And I, of course, I believe that. But in the active sense, as you read that first chapter, there's three different actions that take place. And I don't, I don't believe that they would be interchangeable, but I may be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I don't see any reason for them not being interchangeable in the sense of like, look, uh, he's creating. I think that the idea of forming is more taking something which is already material and giving it shape and form. So there's that. I think creating maybe is a more general term, but the idea of let there be, he's speaking something into existence out of non-existence. This is, you know, in theological terms, this is creation ex nihilo, which means creation out of nothing, which is a very important doctrinal belief that we have as Christians, that God didn't just take existing things and shape them. He actually created everything that was, and before these things, there was nothing except for God. So, 
All right, Tony, thank you for your question. God bless you, and thanks for calling in. All right, bye-bye. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church taking your calls and texts on the air today. We have all open lines. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or you can text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, that text line is 720-336-0897. Just this past week on Wednesday, you know, just kind of following up on Tony's call, this past week on Wednesday, um, I got invited to an event at the, I'm trying to remember which hotel, Weston Hotel in Westminster here in Colorado, and it was for Answers in Genesis, and it was for members. What's interesting is um, I'm I'm not a member. I, I would be one, but uh, uh, my son is one. So my son, who's 11 years old, is a member of Answers in Genesis, and so I got invited as a guest of my son to this special dinner with uh, Ken Ham last Wednesday at the Weston Hotel in Westminster. And it was great. Uh, we got to talk with Ken afterwards. And uh, my son is a huge fan, reads a lot of uh, a lot of their materials that they put out, a lot of their books, and he subscribes to their magazine. And he, I guess he's a, he's a signed up member. And so he got invited to this nice dinner with Ken Ham and we got to chat with him, but uh, they're doing a great ministry. I would encourage you, for those of you looking for good resources online about these kind of things, like we're talking about um, when it comes to how exactly do science and the Bible connect with each other, check out check out that resource. It's called Answers in Genesis, so AnswersInGenesis.com. Answers in Genesis is also the ministry who... Um, has started a creation museum in northern Kentucky, just south of Cincinnati, and they've also uh, built a life-size ark that you can um, pay and go visit. And uh, I was, he was talking about this during this this fundraising event we were at, and it's just incredible what they've done there. You know, kind of uh, the whole scale of it is much bigger than I would have expected. And uh, they were telling great stories about even public school groups going and taking um, taking their students there and getting to uh, see these things and encounter what the Bible says and what it would have looked like in real life, uh, as we do believe that these stories are not just mythological stories, but they're, they're the true uh, stories of the world. And so very cool work that they're doing. Go check them out, AnswersInGenesis.com. Ken Ham is a legend, and it was uh, great to meet him last week. Hey, we've got all open lines. Give us a call. The number is 303-690-3000. 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, the text line 720-336-0897. This is a show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible or anything going on in your life. We'd love to hear from you or talk with you. We are going to be going to our two-minute break in just uh, one minute from now. But I do have some text questions that we'll be addressing probably after the break. But uh, here's what some of them are. Maybe this will inspire some of you who are um, looking to call in with your questions. We're going to be talking about this question. Do do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Apparently, um, there's been some talk online about this recently because um, a Southern Baptist pastor named J.D. Greer uh, recently received some criticism over claims that he said that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And uh, one of the things that this person uh, who texted in wrote was this, that isn't it true that there are some, uh, that historically 
uh, early Christians didn't see Islam as a different religion, but they actually saw it as a Christian heresy, right? So they considered uh, Islam a Christian heresy. So we're, we're going to be talking about that uh, on the other side of the break, as well as the book of Esther. Is the book of Esther really historically reliable? Like, should it, is it allegorical or is it actually true historically? Um, as well as the question of, are some parts of the Bible more inspired by God than others? But Right now, we're going to be going to our break in just a minute. We'd love to hear from you. Do give us a call. The number is 303-690-3000. 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. If you call during the break, we'll get you on right after that ends. Welcome back to Calvary Live. Give us a call at 303-690-3000 or text us at 720-336-0897. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon and welcome back to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. This is the show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible or anything going on in your life that you would like prayer for or you'd like to discuss. We'd love to hear from you and talk with you, pray for you, and hopefully answer some of your questions. So give us a call. The number to call is 303-690-3000. It's 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. That's 720-336-0897. Uh, before we uh, go to our next caller, I wanted to address a text question that came in. This person um, was asking this question. Let me pull it up real quick. This question, this person was asking this. They said, Dear Pastor Nick, I'm an avid listener to Hope FM in Baltimore, Maryland. I love it when uh, you host the show. I have a question. How will we not be fooled by others that pretend they are the Christ in the days ahead maybe even trying to deceive us with signs or wonders. Thank you so much. Okay, so the text that you're referring to comes from um, a passage called the Olivet Discourse, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse was a teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which is a hill just to the east of the old city of Jerusalem. And it was during his Passion Week, which is the final week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and then his resurrection after, uh, after that, three days later. And so during that week, you remember that Passion Week, it began with Jesus being welcomed into the city of Jerusalem and hailed as king. They laid down palm branches on the street. He rode in on a donkey, which was the fulfillment of a prophecy. And Jesus came in uh, announcing himself to be the Messiah, and he was received as the Messiah. And they called him the Son of David, which was kind of the whole point of the Messiah, that he was a descendant of David, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, and the one who would liberate the people. And so Jesus comes in in that week, and you remember the, the first thing they expected Jesus to do was to ride up from the, the valley into the old city of Jerusalem, and then what did they expect him to do? They expected him to go right over to the Antonia Fortress, which was the place where the Romans were holed up in the old city in their fortress, and that he would lead a rebellion against the Ant and he would uh, liberate the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem at that time, understand, would have been engorged with people. It had been 
full of people. And so really, the, the Romans would have been on their heels. It maybe would have been perhaps the best time to do that because it was Passover week. And so the city of Jerusalem was full of people who had come to the city from other parts of Israel and, um, and other parts of you know places where Jews had gone into diaspora. So now they've come back to the city. There's so many people in the city. You can imagine the, the Romans are probably pretty defensive. And Jesus comes in. But instead of going to the, um, the Antonia Fortress, where the Romans uh, are based with their military, Jesus instead went to the temple. And instead of driving out the Romans, what did Jesus do? He drove out the money changers and the people who were ripping other people off in the name of God. And so he goes there, and that's not what people expected him to do. And over the course of several days there, Jesus, in a way, had everybody on, on his side expecting him to be the liberator of the people. And he went in, and within a couple of days, those same people who had shouted Hosanna had turned against him and were shouting a different uh, phrase. They were shouting, crucify him by Thursday or Friday. And so... The Olivet Discourse is a talk that he gave to his disciples that during that week when he's in Jerusalem, when things are really at like a fever pitch, he walked up on the Mount of Olives, which is just a hill to the east of the old city, and he stood there and he looked over the city and he told them about some things that were going to happen. And here's what's really important to understand about the Mount of, uh, about the um, Olivet Discourse is that the disciples asked Jesus two questions. Number one, what, when will these things happen? And number two, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And what Jesus does, and one of the reasons why the Olivet Discourse is a little bit hard to, to really comprehend and understand, it's, been challenge, it's a challenging piece of scripture to really um, to understand, is that Jesus' answer to those questions, they intertwine prophecy concerning both the destruction of Jerusalem and his second coming. So the nearer event, the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 AD, serves in Jesus's um, all of that discourse as a foreshadowing and a symbol of the more distant event, which is his second coming. So he's talking about both of those things during the all of that discourse. And during part of that discourse, he says, it says this, that he sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him. They said, what will be the sign of these things? And what will be the sign of the end of the age and, and of your coming? And Jesus said this, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And um, they will lead many astray. You will hear of many wars and rumors of wars, but see that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And later on, Jesus says this, that there will be those who come in his name and even do signs. And if possible, they will even lead away um, some of those who are believers. And so Jesus' answer, again, um, he tells them these things. Watch out for those who come claiming to be the Messiah. And what's interesting is that um, how will we know that how will we not be deceived is the question this, this uh, texture asked. And there are a few things I would point out. Um, Jesus is talking about three things. Number one, people who are claiming to be the Messiah. And that's interesting because, you know, we know that historically after this, about a hundred years after Jesus, there was a man who came uh, and led a rebellion against the Romans. His name was Bar Kokhba. And he came about a hundred years after Jesus. And what's ironic is that those who rejected Jesus when he came to them as Messiah, they ended up falling for a couple of false messiahs who came after Jesus. And that's what Jesus is warning his disciples. And as they're, you know, they would have been recording this. He would have wanted them to record that. Hey, 
be careful. Other people are going to come claiming to be the Messiah, and they're going to lead you astray. Don't follow them. Well, that's exactly what happened in the years following uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven, is that other people did come claiming to be Messiah and caused a lot of problems. Uh, another thing is that people claim that um, Jesus had returned or that they are Jesus. So this is what Paul talks about uh, in Second Thessalonians in particular, that the Thessalonians had this misunderstanding where they thought that Jesus had returned and that you know, somehow they had not been part of it that, you know, they hadn't been taken up to heaven. And so they were like, oh no, we missed Jesus' second coming. And Paul the apostle had to write to them and say, guys, you did not miss the second coming. It hasn't happened yet. You know, people might say that Jesus has returned, but he hasn't returned yet. Interestingly, there have been other people throughout history who have claimed to be either Jesus returned himself, or they've claimed that Jesus returned and that uh, other people missed it and didn't see it. Maybe the most famous of this, by the way, is the Jehovah's Witnesses, who claim that Jesus returned invisibly in 1914 and began to reign over the earth from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society in Brooklyn, New York, which is the official name of the Jehovah's Witness organization. Now, the problem with this is that the Bible says that when Jesus returns, it will be visible and it will usher in a time of peace, which clearly the world has not yet seen. Um, there's also currently a man in Russia, you can watch him on YouTube, there's a guy in Siberia named Vissarion who claims to be Jesus. He is a retired traffic policeman and he leads a uh, cult out in the middle of Siberia and he claims to be the return of Jesus and he, he dresses in like these white robes and you know he has the classic Jesus painting look where he has long hair and a beard, um, but clearly uh, he is not Jesus. So the other thing is that uh, the other thing we've seen happen uh, throughout the years is that people have wrongly predicted the date of Jesus' return. Um, you know, very famously, uh, in 1846, a man named William Miller produced a lot of publications that convinced literally hundreds of thousands of people in the United States that Jesus was going to return in 1846. And when he did not, it caused a lot of people to fall away from their faith. And, um, and even some cultic groups spawned out of that. So trying to predict Jesus' return is really kind of a fool's errand since Jesus told us not to do that. Like in Acts 1-7, they said, hey, what is the time of your return? When are you going to do this? And Jesus said, don't worry about that. Rather, when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus said, there's no secret code that you're going to crack. There, there's, this is not something you need to worry about. What you need to worry about is, um, I'm going to come back when I come back. You worry about serving me until I come back. That is your job. You're a person on a mission, and you Stay dedicated to that mission until I come back. So to answer your question, how will we not be deceived and how will we know that Jesus returns? Here's how we'll know. It will be very obvious. Uh, everyone will know. The Apostle John says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him. Now, what's interesting is that John said that. That's the Apostle John who wrote Revelation. And he didn't need like some special vision to know that everybody's going to see Jesus when he returns. Uh, John had heard Jesus himself say that in the Olivet Discourse. They're on the uh, Mount of Olives on, during that week before Jesus was crucified. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 26. He says, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, don't believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So how to be sure 
that you're not deceived? Well, ignore alleged predictions uh, or claims of Jesus' return. Jesus' second coming will not happen without you knowing about it. I guarantee it. Jesus said it. So hope that answers your question. Thank you for that, uh, that great and intriguing question. Uh, you're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air today. Let's go to Peggy in Denver, Colorado. Hi, Peggy. Welcome to the program. Hi. Um, I was just going to make a sidebar comment on your comment about God and uh, the other Muslim God being the same. Okay. Um, so a few years ago, I read a book about a man named Samuel Seawall, and he was a Salem witch judge. And this it's all about him through his diaries that he kept. And he uh, repented for being a Salem witch judge. But in his diaries... He always prayed about um, Muslims coming to know the true Christ, and he also prayed about them being our enemies of the United States. Okay. And so I just thought it was interesting that clear back then and even today, people think that we all pray to the same God when... In fact, even back during the Salem witch trials, this man knew the difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is a really interesting topic, and I think there's a few things that are that are really noteworthy to say about it. Um, I, I have a website where I write articles, and so I've written an article for this. It doesn't come out until tomorrow, but I would encourage you to check it out and, um, and maybe leave your comments on there. But my... Um, so I'll just give you the address for the blog. Again, this, this okay. post won't come out until tomorrow. Um, okay. But it is uh, nickkady.org. So it's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I wrote a whole post on this. I thought it was pretty interesting. It was in response to a question I got asking mm-hmm. this. And, and here's why it's so interesting is because uh, it's pretty well documented that early Christians, so you know, Islam came about in the 7th century, so 600s mm-hmm. A.D., and during that time, it came about in a region where there were a lot of Christians because in the Middle East, before Islam uh, really took over the region, that was a very Christian region. Not necessarily the Arabian Peninsula where Muhammad was at, but the other areas of the Near East, like uh, what's now modern-day Jordan, Syria, Iraq. Uh, these were all very Christian areas. And Lebanon, for example, even until very recent times, was majority Christian. And Egypt was the majority Christian country at that time. So what's interesting is that the Christians at that time didn't actually view Islam as a different religion. They viewed it more along the lines of how we would view Mormonism. And I found that really interesting. So I did some research on that and, um, and kind of came up with, okay, so when we ask the question, are we praying to the same God? Well, it, you know, the real issue is this. What are the defining characteristics of the God that we believe in as Christians and and Bible believers, and what are the defining characteristics of God according to Islam and the Quran, and are they different, right? Because, um, I mean, Allah is really just the Arabic word for God. It's It's very similar to our word for God. It's a generic term for the supreme deity. 
but they have very different characteristics. So the God of the Bible, this is why Christians and, and Jews tend to have more affinity for each other because we, have, uh, we believe that God has the same attributes, whereas the God, according to Islam and the Quran, has different attributes. And so I think that based on that, we can say that we're not talking about the same God. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Here's where I found this really interesting. I think that I think that that those Christians were right that Islam is actually more similar to Mormonism than to like say like Buddhism or Hinduism, right? And um, and here's one of the reasons is because um, you know here here's some think about some of the, the the similarities. Both of them claim to be built upon the Old and New Testaments both Islam and Mormonism, but they both claim that the Old and New Testaments have been corrupted and are therefore not trustworthy. And both of them claim that there's a new revelation. For Islam, it's the Quran. For the Mormons, it's the Book of Mormon. Uh, both claim to have a new prophet, Muhammad on the one hand and Joseph Smith on the other. Uh, both change the identity and the story of Jesus and both teach a what we call a works-based salvation. So I, I found that very interesting. And, um, and you know, really the big question is, are there some shared assumptions about God that we can use to evangelize Muslims? And I think the answer is yes, but we have to be very careful that we don't go so far as saying that we're believing in the same God. Agreed. I agree. So, yeah, I just thought it was interesting someone back in those times yeah, knew that. Sure. Yeah. yeah, and I bet, you know what? I bet you could go back a lot further and find that mm -hmm. same thing. Because, you know, like Islam came about in a region where there were a lot of Christians. And mm. um, and it spread into areas and kind of took over areas where there were Christian populations. And so there's actually quite a lot of writing from like the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th centuries from Christians um, dealing with the issues of Islam and trying to uh, respond to it. So, yeah, that's really cool. Melinda, thank you for that question. Yeah. yeah. God bless you. Oh, okay, right. thank you. Bye-bye. Bye -bye. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air. Let's go to Melinda in Maryland. Hi, Melinda. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. So my question is, how do you tell a loved one that um, a loved one who had unexpectedly died and this loved one telling me that oh well we'll see our loved one in heaven knowing that I know and I know she know that he did not live a Christian life mm -hmm. I mean far as you know as I see with my naked eyes I mean so how I mean I'm not the one I don't want to judge judge this person but I just want to know how do how do I say something to someone like that I mean they're so sure that this person is going to heaven. However, and I know about the thief on the cross. I thought about the thief on the cross, but I, I just don't know how to, I don't know how to explain it. So I just don't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So again, it sounds like you already know this, but I would just remind you that, you know, the fact is none of us really know uh, that, you know, none of us really have the uh, ability or authority to say who's in heaven and who's not. And, you know, you don't really know what happened. I would say in that loved one's, you know, final moments of life, perhaps, or really where they were at with God. And so we entrust that to God. But of course, we do know 
that there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved and that if Jesus is a savior, then to reject him is to reject salvation. So uh, putting all those things together, here's how I deal with it. Because I've, you know, I've performed funerals for people who very clearly were not Christians. And, um, you know, one of the things that I always do because, you know, that's really not like a very popular thing to say at a, a funeral, nor would it maybe even be a kind thing to say at a funeral is to say, hey, I know you guys all hope that this person went to heaven, but guess what? They didn't. So I don't do that. But what I do is I say this. Um, I go to Luke 16, and this is a passage I preach at, uh, particularly funerals of people who I'm not sure if they are in heaven or I doubt that they're in heaven. And it's the story of rich man and the rich man and Lazarus. So it's uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And here's what's so interesting about this story. It says that there's a rich man. There was another man named Lazarus who was poor, maybe even like almost homeless. And um, the rich man ends up going to hell and Lazarus ends up going to heaven. And then from Hades or hell, the rich man uh, begins crying out to Abraham. And there are a few things that we learn about heaven and hell in this story. And the one is this, that there is a chasm between uh, heaven and hell, which cannot be bridged, right? So it's not like you can pass from one to the other. There is no way to pass from hell into heaven. So it's very final. Not only this, but it says that it's eternal. It, it tells us that, that it's eternal here in this place. So it's eternal. There's no way to pass between the two. And then with the final thing that we learn here is this, that the man says, he says, I beg you, Father Abraham, send someone to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, but Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And what all this means is this. This is kind of how I summarize at the end of my uh, funeral service. I'll, I'll usually say this. Your loved one, whoever they are, if they could speak to you right now, here's what they would want you to know. They would want you to know, number one, that God exists that heaven and hell are real and not everyone goes to heaven. And finally, they would want you to know this, that um, they want you to put your faith in Jesus so that you would be saved. That's what we learned from the story of Rich Man and Lazarus, that his greatest desire was for his loved ones to not experience torment eternally, but to be saved. Uh, and the way to do that is by believing in Jesus. So that is the way I would approach it. I think you can do that in a way that is loving it's not judgmental uh and in a way that helps rather than just hurts Does that that makes sense and i know that story too I, i'm glad you had expound on that that absolutely correct thank you yeah my Appreciate pleasure I, I hope that helps you talk with your okay. family all right thank you all right god bless Bye -bye. God bless you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts on the air. We've got time for a couple more calls before the end of the show. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. Let's go to Michelle in line three. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the program. Hello, Katie, Pastor Katie. How you doing? 
doing well. What's up? Yes. I'm calling because I'm having a situation where, about divorce, I, I was hearing people testimony about divorce. Okay. okay. When I was 18 years old, I got pregnant with fraternal twins, and the father went away in the military, and four years later, he came back home. I know it was past tense, in 1990, uh, 90-ish, 90-something. But um, when they were toddlers, the father was into a Jehovah Witness when I met him when we were courting and I got pregnant. And uh, when they were little, uh, the father and I were living together. They were toddlers. I think they were like two years old, two or three years old. And the father beat me down on the floor in front of them. And my son, he was crying and everything. So um, I had to remove him from out of my house. But as years went on, uh, it went into a channel of me leaving, going to to the West Coast when they got like five years old. And I left the relationship, but I wasn't married to him. And then I went to California and I stayed there for several years and then meeting my family out there. And then as I came back from there, I got sick in 1987. Mentally, I was burnt out and just bombarded with all kind of stuff. And then uh, the, the dad came to the hospital to see me. We was not married, but I had my ch- my children through him, me and, me and him being a parent of the fraternal twins. And so as time went on, uh, I married him, and then I was looking at going to his lawyers and judges about making it illegitimate to not let my children be bastards to have his name, his father's name. But as years went on, uh, I did all I could do. So when he turned nine years old, uh, something happened with my daughter when I was living in Baltimore City when she was nine and ten years old, my son, the fraternal twins. And then the father stepped in and took them. I had custody of my children at that time in 1990s. 1996, and so he taking them in, and then he was teaching them the Jehovah Witness teachings, and all the stuff that was going on. They was living with him, and he was real strict on him and putting all kind of stipulations on them. So they they came out of high school in 1999, and then my mother taking custody of them because I was getting myself back, recuperating from the mental depression. But presently, um, I divorced him because. Um, of the abuse, and I've been struggling with uh, my children. They they believe in God, but they're told wrong from the Jehovah Witness through their dad showing them to Jehovah Witness. And so now, presently, my children are 37 years old, living in Baltimore, Maryland. So, and they Michelle, live together. I'll just interrupt you real quick because we're getting near the end of our program. I want to know, uh, what can I help you with? What What is the question I can answer for you um, on this subject? Um, being unequally yoked, and I, I, I'm single, I'm divorced. And what about the description? Where, where is it found about uh, sins of the fathers? Sins of the fathers and mothers? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's found several places in the Old Testament. Um, you know, one of them is in, uh, even in um, Exodus 34, where it talks about, uh, you know, the the sins of fathers continuing on for generations. Here's what I would tell you. There's also a passage in Ezekiel chapter 18, which says this, I don't want you to say that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And what that means is that Jesus is saying, or I'm sorry, the, 
God is saying in the Old Testament. He's saying, um, I don't want you to use that as an excuse and say, the reason I am the way that I am is because of my father. He says, you know, every or, or my mother, everybody, he says, um, has to answer for their own sins. So he's talking about personal responsibility in that case. Um, so I don't, I don't really think that that verse... Um, here, here's how that verse might apply to your kids, you know, with some of the stuff that they've been exposed to um, sin wise, you know, th those are things which leave a mark on them and they're going to probably be perhaps tempted in some of those areas. They might suffer the consequences of the things which they've been exposed to or that have been done to them or around them. And but here's the good news. It doesn't have to be that way. It's not set in stone. It's not fatalistic. There, there is um, a way to be redeemed from those things in Jesus. Um, you as a, as a divorced person, I would encourage you with what Paul says in First uh, Corinthians 7, that in whatever state you are in, you know, do it fully unto the Lord. If you're married, be, be married fully unto the Lord. If you are single, be devoted wholly to the Lord. And it sounds like you have great opportunities to minister to your kids. I would encourage you to do that. There's a lot of really great resources there. One that I always point people to is called alwaysbeready.com. Alwaysbeready.com. It's a friend of mine, Charlie Campbell, who runs this great ministry based in California, but it, he travels all over the world, and he speaks on subjects, for example, like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. How do we, you know, what's the difference between that and Christianity, and what do we say to people who are caught up in that? So do check that out, alwaysbeready.com, and uh, and God bless you, Michelle. Thank you for your question and we pray that you're uh, blessed by God and led by him and that truly you're able to live your life wholeheartedly for the Lord as you minister to your kids. You've been listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church. God bless you and have a great evening. You've been listening to Calvary Live. Tune in next time for prayer and God's word.